so we can uh, uh, potentially adapt because your genes, you cannot change them. If you're born with a set of genes, that's it. <laughs> Don't change. But your epigenome can be modified by the nutrition you have, for example, uh, from birth to weaning. So the amount of milk, the type of milk, real milk, powdered milk, all this is is capable of modulating uh, the, uh, uh, the consequences. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We are sciencing the global food challenge. DSM. Providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. Xzealot. A novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Smaxtech. Get insights from inside your cows with Smaxtech for higher herd health and profitability. R Yeast 40. Ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. Our Yeast 40 is a natural biotechnology from ICC, designed to boost the health and productivity of animals under challenging production systems. Our Yeast 40 performance is supported by an unique processing technology that results in a pure product containing high levels of beta-glucans, MOS, and yeast metabolites. These factors, combined, promote the ruminal and intestinal modulation, helping the animals to reach their full potential. Hello, and welcome back to the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Barry Bradford from Michigan State University. Today, I'm honored to welcome Professor Marc-Andre Serrard to the show. Professor Serrard is the Canadian Research Chair in Genomics and Reproduction at the University of Laval and the Director of the Reproduction Research Center there. Uh, he completed his DVM from the University of Montreal and then a PhD at the University of Laval. And after spending a year at the University of Wisconsin, then joined the faculty at the University of Laval in 1987, uh, where he's been working ever since. So Dr. Serrard, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. I'm very happy to be here this morning. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, you've really been, I'd say, right in the thick of things during a window of huge developments in um, reproductive technologies, I would say. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got interested in this? Were you from an ag background? How did you get drawn into this area? Yeah, well, I was interested to be veterinarian because of my childhood environment and I, I was like a doolittle vet, but when I went to vet school, I realized that uh, rather work with large animals than dogs and cats, I thought it was more purposeful and useful. And when I did my vet degree, it was the time where uh, in vitro fertilization started in human in 78 with uh, Louise Brown, but in bovine, the first IVF calf was made in 1981 in Virginia, and some of my professors participated to that. So as a new vet, I said, oh, you go to practice because you're not really a vet until you, 
you have uh, hit the, the road and, and practice yourself. But I wanted to do um, something a bit more specialized. And in dairy cows, reproduction is kind of the big, t- big topic to explore. And uh, that's what made me decide to try to do IVF in Canada in cows uh, in the same lab where they were doing human IVF. Uh, and they had decided to use the cow as a model. That goes back to 1982 when I started there. Can you talk me through a few of the contributions you've made? I know there's a there was a thousand little steps in making IVF, uh, you know, pretty efficient at, at generating calves. How did you participate in those those developments? Yeah, the the first calf that was born in U.S. Uh, they use a surgery to cut the cow open and get the ovary out and aspirate the oocyte. So that was not very. Uh, uh, healthy for future <laughs> reproductive capacity of that animal. So um, we uh, we copy the human by using a laparoscopic approach. Laparoscope is a long tube that you insert in the cow belly uh, so you don't have to put them under. In fact, you can do that but with the cow standing. So we did that, and uh, now it's working okay, uh, but we have, uh, like most people around the world, we couldn't get fertilization of the oocytes. And uh, at the same time, that was a uh, funny. I had a problem with my long laparoscope because the cow has a big belly. So the laparoscope was like a meter long. So um had coagulation. The blood was coagulating in the tube. So uh, to prevent that, I created a medium with heparin. Heparin is anti- anticoagulant. So adding heparin in large amount to my flushing media was preventing coagulation. But at the same time, as I discovered when I went a year later to Wisconsin, that heparin is the factor that make bovine sperm fertile, surprisingly. But I didn't know that until I was in the U.S. and working with those guys. So it, got, it was kind of by luck that laparoscope coagulation created a context where we had uh, the right product at the right time to capacitate the sperm from bull that was uh, coming from from fresh bull and uh, fresh semen from bulls. And then it started to work and we make the uh, second IVF in the world, the third. So we made nine of them uh, during my PhD. So that was kind of, okay, now it works for this species. And we have we have a process. So a lot of people starting to copy that and I've uh, teach laparoscopy in Texas and Colorado, different places, and that became kind of the uh, the way to treat inf- infertile cows. But there were not that many, and that has really evolved into not an infertility treatment as it was in the beginning, but as a treatment to multiply genetics as it, as it is today. So there's been a lot of changes uh, occurring over the years that changed the purposes. While in human, it's still to treat fertility. Uh, so it, it, though, let's say those development technological development have moved in different uh, direction because of the different perspective in um, uh, animal selection and, and fertility problem we have to deal with. Yeah, you're right, and, and and part of that has been, I guess, like any technology, really, is as people got good at this, the cost, you know, for for a commercial dairy producer, the cost of doing this has dropped and dropped and dropped and. Uh, there's one AI company in the U.S. that will 
give you a 100% beef embryo to put in a cow for a shockingly low number. And I, I can imagine that you having been involved all the way through that process, that's been a really interesting development to watch. In, in Wisconsin, what we did uh, in, in Neil First Lab in Madison, we kind of optimized the use of uh, oocytes we were getting from slaughtered cows. So the cow goes to slaughter. Normally, the uh, ovaries go to the, the bin, and uh, we collect those ovaries right right after the animal is processed, within like a, a few minutes. And then we can uh, use the oocytes that are in follicles in that ovary uh, to uh, to produce embryos. So first, we mature the oocytes, like takes one day. Then we put sperm, takes one day. Then we put them in a special uh, good media for them. It takes one week. And then we can put them back in cows. So that generated a huge amount of embryo, cheap embryo, as you, as you kind of say. So we could develop all sorts of technology like sexing, cloning, and all this because we had the material uh, very accessible in this species that made uh, us learn way more than they could in human because of the access to, to the material. So the bovine has been a model for human for forever because of that. So give us an update on, you know, in, in your interactions, um, you know, with the industry in North America, where do you see some interesting uses of IVF for herd management today? Well, it's been mainly developed for the high you know, genetic value, mainly Osteen. Um, it was uh, trying to reduce generation interval. So uh, using not infertile cows, but air fur to give a lot of embryos. And therefore, uh, within 60, uh, 60 days, you can have three oocytes recovery and get like 60 embryos. You can do the genomic analysis on them. You can sex them and suddenly you have kind of a choice of uh, embryo to implant. So it's really powerful for uh, genetic progress. And as it has been used in, in Moet in small uh, herds uh, that the uh, AI company have for, you know, in increasing or accelerating genetic gain. So now, of course, there's been made, it's been used to make bulls from those uh, very young air force using even young bull at the same time. So combining those two teenagers together, you can go very quickly to the next uh, generation. And, and now, yeah, not in the male, we cannot go pre-pubertal. <laughs> we don't have semen. But in the female, now we can go uh, uh, five, six months of age to start collecting oocytes by oh, wow. superpopulation. Although it's a bit controversial because people don't like to uh, realize that we can use younger animal younger than puber animal uh it was using non-surgical approach still but uh there's there's some pushback in terms of how far should we go in terms of using younger and younger animals for produce uh, those those tough bulls i know um sort of i think growing out of of that area of research and your interests um you started to get into a related field called epigenetics can you first explain to us what that term even means? Yes, it's kind of a new kid on the block. Uh, epigenetics means, epi means on top of. So it's information that is added to your DNA sequence that has uh, value for, uh, let's say, uh, 
controlling what the genes are doing. Because in our body, we have like 200 types of cells. They all have the same genome. The skin and the liver, they have the same genome, but they don't use the same part of it. So in our genome, we have like 25, 30,000 genes in human, or cow is the same. So in each cell, we use like 12,000 of them. But in the skin, for example, we have pink keratin, and in your eyes, transparent keratin. So the genes of pink keratin is turned off in your eyes, and the transparent one is turned off in your skin, and vice versa. So it allows all sorts of cells to have different function, even if they have the same genome. And the, the way it's done, uh, genome is like a book. And there's sentences with instruction. And when we put methylation on the, the letters, it's like having um, a pen writing on it. So you don't see the letters anymore. It's, it's carbon. It's methylation. It's really a carbon. So it's really like, like, like a pencil on top of it. And then, uh, this genes like the pink keratin cannot be read in your eyes. So that gene is silent. So this is kind of the basic concept of epigenetics. But now we realize that this programming of cells for their own fate is sensitive to the environment. So as we grow into an embryo and then a fetus, uh, at the same from human or cows during pregnancy, the amount of food uh, will have an impact on the size of the baby, the future health of the baby. If the mother is uh, smoking or is drinking alcohol, now we have a lot of evidence that the health of the infant out of it will have will be impacted. That's the same in cows, but what we're looking at, because our cow are not smoking or <laughs> drinking alcohol, they're submitted to metabolic stresses. And those metabolic stresses is probably the only way that our genome is, is sensitive or responding to. Because the genome of cows and humans have been, you know, evolving for millions of years. So to change something takes time. To change a gene, or have a mutation and have this mutation selected, it takes hundreds of years or hundreds of generations. But with the epigenetic Adaptability is like we have some plasticity in our uh, working genome. And if, for example, uh, during the early pregnancy, there's not enough food and the animal is starving because there's a drop or whatever, there's a, this uh, seasonal uh, climate change, for example, and, and the calf coming out of that cow will be much more efficient to accumulate energy but will live less longer and will have a reduced fertility, which makes sense in a longer perspective. If you want your species to survive, well, you create smaller animals, don't, don't reproduce too much, and are more efficient to extract energy just to do basic survival, not to make milk. So the concept is there. The problem is, in their cow, we're trying to breed our cows when they're losing weight because they're at the peak of their lactation. So doing that, we have created a, a similar context as, let's say, obesity in humans in everywhere in the world, I would say in the United States, but now it's, it's worldwide that there's an epidemic of obesity. 
And that is also epigenetic because there's no gene for obesity. So this is the effect of the environment in, in our in our system. So in, in cows, we don't have an obesity problem. We have an infertility problem that is growing because of this metabolic programming uh, that is going kind of across generation and sometimes more than one generation. So the selection for much higher production in the last 40 years has been associated with the reduction in fertility and all the efforts of the AI company and our group to uh, select a better gene for fertility has been not so successful because it's not really genetically de derived or driven. It's the amount of food that controls our reproduction and the fact that we're um, breeding cows when they're lacking food because they're losing weight because they're making 10,000 kilos of milk a year. So that creates a, a pseudo or uh, a fake starvation conditions to which the embryo adapts and the next generation, the embryo is, is more feed efficient. That's good for us because we don't have obese cow. They give a bit more milk, which is kind of surprising, but the cost to pay is fertility. So that's why I'm have uh, a lot of work to do uh, for the rest of my career, certainly because fertility problem is not going away. It's increasing because the uh, metabolic programming of the cow has been so well optimized for milk production. So that's kind of a summary of what is going on and, and uh, what we're trying to, um, to understand. What's the molecular process of having this DNA methylation during early embryo that results in uh, genes that behave differently later in life so we can uh, uh, potentially adapt because your genes, you cannot change them. If you're born with a set of genes, that's it. <laughs> Don't change. But your epigenome can be modified by the nutrition you have, for example, uh, from birth to weaning. So the amount of milk, the type of milk, real milk, powdered milk, all this is, is capable of modulating uh, the, uh, uh, the consequences in human, for example, breastfeeding is truly important to reduce obesity compared to bottle feeding in child that have been, for example, uh, been born to mother that have slightly higher BMI. So that's kind of predisposition. And then they, uh, if they have breastfeeding, it's better. Then if you don't give them sugar, fruit, uh, fruit juice with sugar, it's another type of an intervention that reduce the likelihood of uh, having a metabolic pro problem later on. So in cows, we would like to kind of do the same to modulate our early feeding to, uh, to optimize, let's say, the later life, which is milk production and fertility at the same time. I really like how you explain a, a complicated concept of epigenetics. So, you know, using that analogy of uh, DNA methylation is essentially a, a pencil scribbling over the DNA. Like, I think um, maybe it's a difficult question, but I'd like to see you wrestle with it. So clearly your, your cells in your eye can have different scribble marks than the cells in your skin. So clearly it can change during development with different cell types, right? Differentiating. On the other hand, you're saying that a developing embryo is going to receive scribble marks that are going to influence the whole life of that animal. So how do, how do we, 
make those things fit together. Clearly, there can be some rewriting and some is carried over. We're actually making, a, I think we're the first in the world, making a, a complete epigenetic map of the uh, bovine genome using blood. Um, and what we see is about 95 of the methylation is set by our, our genes and what we call ontology is the cells that we start with one cell that divide in two cells. And uh, for the first week of life, it goes like to 100 cells. And then there's two types of cells that comes out of it. One will become the placenta. The other one will become the embryo. So right there, you have two different fate of cells. So the enzyme that will change the methylation to change that fate or, let's say, programmed by the, the genome of, of, uh, of the embryo. So 95% of our genome is fixed. So you, Everybody has, you know, clear keratin in their eyes. Very, I mean, it doesn't happen that we have people that are born blind. So that part is fixed. Even if it's writing on it, the process of writing on specific gene is so well established during uh, the last millions of years that it cannot be changed. And that's okay. That's ontology. That's our development from one cells to 200 different tissues. What can be changed is what was left open for change because it has a value is adaptation to amount of energy, food. More food, you, you, you have larger life, you have more babies, less food, you're, you're cheaper and you have less babies. So it's, it's as simple as that, but that's only 5% of the writing that is sensitive to what's happening outside. And the embryo at four cell stage, and we have shown that, sense the environment. He has no noise. He has no eyes, but he has chemical capacity in his mitochondria and everything. To say how much energy is, is it out there? And surprisingly, uh, when we, when the embryo or the ovary for the same reason, see fatty acid in the blood, because that fatty acid goes everywhere, uh, the reflex is, oh, fatty acid means we're starving. Because normally when we have food, we have glucose and fatty acid remains low and is balanced and goes to storage and everything. But when glucose goes down and fatty acid goes up, it means that we're starving because we're using the reserve we have. We, we're, make, we're using our fat reserve that are being used to, to for energy. So... The embryo and your say, wow, we're starving. There's a problem. But, for example, in human, uh, with the lifestyle we have today, uh, we have fatty acid in our blood all the time because we eat too much. And worse than that, we have a, 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 another sugar called fructose. This uh, tells us fructose, it's like fruit. Fruit means fall. Fall means before winter. So our liver tends to use fructose. Oh, fructose, we should store that for later. So when we eat fructose, like fruit juice, and, and we store it, then the glucose level go down. And if we eat fat, the fat goes up. So our tissue, our ovaries and embryo, thinks we're starving while we're fattening, <laughs> which is the opposite. And across generation, we have created a whole world problem of obesity because of that. It's a bit worse in US because we 
put the sugar we put in pops is not sugarcane like in Europe. Is uh, maple, uh, corn syrup, syrup, which is more fructose. So we've been programming our, our, our uh, in America our our people to become let's say diabetes type two more and more because of that process of. So the same the same mechanism works in cows. So we just have to uh, uh, learn exactly how it works so we can better define because in human we don't control the environment. In cows, we do control what they eat. We control everything. So there's, there's a, it's a very good model to understand how uh, the environment, the food environment, can program later elk because those cows, if they stay in the herd one or two more years, that's where, I'd say, the bacon is, that's where the money is, is keeping those cows up to six years, which is not what's happening these days because they they just uh, go infertile or mastitis. So we can better program these animals early on uh, for reducing those problems, uh, keeping the same milk production. Uh, suddenly, uh, the profit is all going up. Uh, the greenhouse going down because we raise less earthworms. So there's a lot of pluses of uh, maintaining cows one or two more years in the herds. And raising less cows per year, because if you keep them, you don't need that many. So that equation now is key for dairy producers to optimize their, their, um, and there's, uh, economical out, gain out of the, out of the process. So it, science is at the service of, of this. We just have to keep, uh, de- describing it and understanding it. So, uh, it's, in our management system, then we can get a lot better in, in making cows live longer. The, the point you make about the environment that the early embryo is in, I mean, that leads pretty quickly to questions of, ha, has that been tested in IVF scenarios? Or have you sort of tried to compare epigenetic responses in IVF calves versus natural? Yes. I mean, there's uh, only one study before we uh, did that in Quebec was uh, from Pete Denson, University of Florida, was looked in one herd IVF versus embryo transfer versus AI. Why we have to compare IVF with embryo transfer? It's because for both we use a recipient and it's a mother, and the mother has an impact on the health of the future baby. So if we have a cow that is milking and pregnant, we cannot compare it to an air fur bearing an IVF embryo. First of all, the air fur is still a teenager, so even in metabolism, that gives a, a different uh, impact, which is not always good to have an air for as a recipient because of that. So uh, what we did in, in Quebec, we have a kind of big co-op system. So we have data sets since uh, 10 years all from all the robots, everything. Also the farms, we have a milk recording system that is uh, across the state and very complete. Most people... And then we extracted the IVF animal out of that with the collaboration of CMEX Bovitech, who allowed us to know, okay, which are the cow in the field that are coming from IVF. And we were able to compare like close to a thousand animal IVF versus, and we had 15,000 ET and like 300,000 uh, AI. And this is in herds that... We compare herds that had ET, uh, sorry, we compare herds that had IVF cows in them. 
we did not compare herbs that have no IVF because management could be different. So we tried to, to really compare apples with apple here. And what we found is the IVF animal, uh, over the, we compared the first three lactation, one, two, three, they had um, a bit more milk than the regular ET cows or AI. So that's a good news. But we, we normalize this gain in terms of genetic value because we have the genome, genotype of both parents and we have the predict, predicted value of milk and the predicted value of milk was not as good as it should have been. Although, we, because for IVF, we use the elites. Of course, they're making more milk. This is the elite. When you correct for this genetic, let's say, trend or value, then it's not significant anymore. They're not making more. They're not making less, but they're not making as much as we would have hoped them uh, to, to do. So that's for milk. For fertility, uh, we also have like one point out of 15 that is lower score in uh, daughter fertility. So we can, let's say, if I use crude number, those cow takes an average five more days to get pregnant. Well, you think that's not much, but every four cows, it's a full cycle that is not uh, fertile. Uh, now we use injection and all this to minimize the effect of this lower fertility. But there's a, there's a catch problem, catch 22 problem without it. When you use drug to synchronize a cow and then you report that this cow is pregnant, oh, she's have a good fertility. No, no, no. <laughs> so the bull and the, the, the parents behind it have points for fertility while they shouldn't have points for fertility because this cow needs to be injected to be, uh, to be cycling. So we have a corruption uh, parameter in the system, which bothers the people doing genetics analysis because they've lost control. Don't know. They don't know anymore who has the, the right genes for fertility because we inject the cows. Biological traits that you're looking at in a synchronized animal are much more narrow than a you know fully natural pregnancy, right? I know people now use AI to try to catch by the timing of dates uh, if the People have used injection or not because people are not recording formally uh, if they use injection in our system. So they try to capture that differently. So I have the, the true fertility by eliminating the cows that they believe because of the date, estrus and all this and timing, they believe that this cow was injected. So, but it, it eventually it would be better to have the recording done properly. And now with the robot and all this, we're getting a bit better in terms of... Uh, controlling all the information and, uh, uh, without the participation of the breeder, <laughs> kind of uh, indirectly. So we have um, a change in the milk temperature, all this uh, with the uh, movement of the animal. So we're starting to have a better tools to better assess the real fertility. I want to ask you about one more thing. I know you've done some work on um, seasonality of fertility. So we, we Maybe think of sheep, for example, as you know, like seasonal breeders, but we don't tend to think of cattle in that way. What have you learned in that respect? That was interesting. We 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 know that the cows has a problem to breed around sixty days, but we, to, to be sure of that, we compare um, ovary tissue, ovary cells from cows at thirty days, sixty, ninety, or one hundred and twenty. One hundred and twenty normally they're all okay and they go back to let's say normal or 
Hereford type of fertility uh, after after 120. So we we aspirate south of the large follicles, so the ovary getting close to ovulation, synchronized, of course. And we we ask the ovarian cell, uh, how do you work? And we measure 25,000 genes at the same time. Uh, and we said, what what is different in your 25,000 gene expression or the way your ovary works? And uh, we thought we would find very complex and, and, and metabolic pathway and all this. But what we find was a bit surprising to us is we found that at 60 days compared to even at 30 and 90, they're better. At 60 days, the worst. 60 days, the ovary is lacking... Um, support it needs more support from two pathways which are kind of driven by one by vitamin a beta carotene the other one by vitamin d and it's been long for it's been known forever and vets have used that injection of vitamin a d normally at calving to reduce milk fever but uh, more and more uh, when you do embryo transfer when super ovulate the cow small injection of vitamin a d seems to help but now we have the kind of the explanation that the ovary is sensitive for that uh, extra level of vitamin D and vitamin A. Then we think, you think about it, vitamin A comes from fresh grass. And after a month, it's almost gone from you know, processed grass and raw, uh, silage and all this. So people have to add it back and it's expensive. And vitamin D comes from the sun. Of course, that's pretty easy. So the ovary will not make a calf if there's not enough food and no vitamin A and no vitamin D. If there's the same conditions, but if the animal is outside on pasture, suddenly the ovary says, oh, okay, we don't have food now, but we're going to have food tomorrow because we have sun and vitamin A. So that's this, the remnant of seasonality that we have found in the ovary, which explains a lot in terms of our animal not, not going outside anymore, uh, having the same food all year long. So we're not creating ideal condition for the cow at day 60. If we wait, and now it's a big trend, instead of trying to inseminate the cow at day 60, like we learned at vet school, now it's more, if the cow is making a lot of milk, we take a BHB sample. So we measure the amount of BHB is an indicator of the fat, the, the cow using her fat for energy. BHB is a fat byproduct. So when we use our fat cells, we have more BHB in our blood. And we can measure that with a keto stick, very cheap. And people are using that. And it's okay. This, this cow is still positive, not cetonemia, but just positive for BHB. We're going to delay insemination 30 days. Then we save on money of course the lactation is longer than 305 but who cares for those guys who give a lot of milk and then we save we save on veterinarian we save on ai we save also on the health of the animal but not being pregnant that soon because those milk machines are incredible i mean they produce so much milk now so give giving them a, a longer break uh seems a uh kind of very good way and we just kind of confirm with our analysis that the ovary was recovering at day 90. So that's that was maybe for those cows the best time to breed them, not to try to push them at day 60, but wait for their BHP to get lower 
So, and then as we we're talking about epigenetic, it's better for the next generation because if the cow is bred at day 90, she's not losing weight anymore. Her body scar is, is stabilized. And so may, uh, the generational effect is minimized. That's really interesting. I've heard people discuss sort of delaying uh, first insemination. I haven't heard people discuss that that strategy of using uh, BHB as a tool to, to decide which cows to apply that to. I, I like that. That's an interesting idea. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Bergen Schmidt, your partner for improving animal performance. Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. Fibro Animal Health Corporation, healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Adiseo USA, producers of SmartMIMM and MilkPay.com. AB Vista helps dairy producers maximize their herd potential with feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function and overall animal health. From young calves to lactating dairy cows, AB Vista is here to combine industry-leading products and optimal feed strategies to increase your ROI. All right, we better draw this to a close. Fascinating. I could talk about this for a long time with you, but um, we, we like to throw three questions uh, to every guest at the end of our conversations. So my first one is, what's your favorite dairy-related book or resource? Well, as a scientist, and especially in genomics, uh, it's very uh, clearly a scientific paper. So I go to PubMed. I have all, all sorts of automatic alert now. And, uh, now I'm getting really interested in mitochondria. So that's I would read that at night sometimes better than do anything else because that's what fascinates me. So that's that's how I get the information of what are the new trends coming up is uh, using the right keywords in the system. Yep, especially today with the open access journals. Um, it's amazing what's available to anybody anywhere in the world through PubMed, other tools. That's great. Uh, what about your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? Uh, what I read is normal, always, always related to my work. And when I don't work, I go outside. I'm a nature lover. So I'm hiking and sea kayaking nearby. There's whales around where I am, uh, belugas and, and big whales. So we can, uh, sometimes they come very close to us in San Florence. It's one of the only place in, on the planet. I mean, I know in Hawaii, I've, I've been there. I mean, the, the wells come close to shore, but not as close as they come because of the topology of the the, the fjord. So they come very close. So uh, we can encounter, you know, those those big mammals as big as a school bus. And they make no waves when they come out. No waves at all. It's just amazing uh, how beautiful they are. So that's what I love to do is going outside and biking, kayaking, hiking. So the first time you were kayaking and a and a whale came up next to you, did it kind of stress you out a little? <laughs> well, oh, not much, but I mean, because normally they, they blow hair uh, like a few minutes before coming back. So, you know, but uh, my wife used to scream when they come closer and we don't expect them. Uh, she, and she's afraid, yeah, they're going to make us, you know, go over. But they're in their element. I mean, they know exactly what they are. So when they come close to us, because they want to have a look at us. That's amazing. It's a good way to put you in your place, right? We're really 
pretty small beings here. <laughs> All right, our last question. In your opinion, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are less successful? Open minds. Uh, we learn a lot of things uh, from different places. We have to think critically, have an open mind and think critically of, okay, uh, there's so much information. Yes, filter it to be open to new ideas. Like this epigenetic thing is, uh, was not present 15 years ago. That's completely new. And people have not been trained at school. I'm starting to train uh, the agronomists at our, uh, our university with that. It's, but it's only like two hours of epigenetics. Well, it's way, way more important. Uh, but the, also nutritionists don't realize they've been doing epigenetics forever because by controlling this, the, the, the sow's you know, intake and then looking at the piglet's output. I mean, it's directly programming metabolism of those. And so that's been around, but now uh, and we have to be open that it's playing a role in addition to genetics and, and, and open our curiosity to it and say, okay, I have to learn more about, about it. So open-minded and critic, critical thinking. All right. Well, that wraps up this this episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. I want to, again, thank Dr. Marc-Andre Serrard for joining us with a fascinating uh, discussion about uh, epigenetics and in vitro fertilization and all things reproduction. Thank you. My pleasure. And if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button so you don't miss the next episode. And until next time, uh, this is Barry Bradford signing off. <laughs>